I speak to you now in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Last week, we reflected on the persistence of the woman from Canaan who came to Jesus on behalf of her daughter and how Jesus said to her, O woman, great is thy faith. By faith, that woman subdued the temptations to abandon her mission and her prayer for help. Two weeks ago, the gospel presented the Lord himself in the wilderness, exhausted and hungry after fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Still, he subdued the attacks of the devil by leaning on the word of God. This morning, the gospel sets the stronger man before us, the one who can help us subdue every dark power and every kind of evil force. The stronger man, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in this morning's gospel that Jesus was casting out a devil that prevented speech. Strangely and ridiculously, some of those who were present insisted that he accomplished this through Beelzebul the prince of devils. In response, Jesus said, when a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he takes from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divides the spoils. In this case, the strong man is Satan. He's armed with his invisible weapons of destruction. And he's in control of all his possessions, all those souls that he has captured until, that is, the stronger man arrives. There is a stronger man, the strongest man, actually, the Lord Jesus. And Satan is no match for him. We know that from the cross and the empty tomb. The strong man used all of his resources and he did his very best. He infiltrated the inner circle of the apostles, capturing Judas's imagination and desire. He sowed seeds of doubt. He whipped up jealousy and hatred amongst the religious leaders. And then he used the threat of physical torture and the reality of physical torture and pain. He threw everything that he had at the Son of God, but to no avail. Christ, our Savior, continued on with God's plan God's plan of salvation. Jesus took our sins and the sins of the whole world upon himself at Calvary. He accepted everything that went with that sacrifice. Humiliation, false accusations, and mocking. He was spit on and beaten and crowned with thorns. 
Still, as the stronger man, he stretched out his arms on the cross. And there he bled and suffered. Yet he prayed for his enemies. And then he exclaimed that the work of salvation was finished. And finally, he breathed his last and gave up the ghost. The devil must have danced on that first Good Friday when the soul of Christ descended into hell. As the strong man, it certainly appeared as though Satan had won. But on the third day, while it was yet dark, Christ rose from the dead, defeating the powers of sin and death and hell, and proving himself to be the stronger man. In our elementary school, the first kid out the door at recess often ran across the parking lot to the top of the snow pile and waited for the other kids. In those precious few minutes of waiting, he or she would dig in and arm themselves with snowballs, preparing for the challengers to make their attack. Then as the other kids began to gather around, the one at the top of the pile would stand up and holler, I'm the king of the castle, and you're the dirty rascals. Needless to say, that declaration would provoke those on the ground, and a battle of epic proportions would ensue. And inevitably, the strong man would be thrown off the hill and replaced by a stronger man. This may be helpful in a certain way as we consider Jesus' words, but it cannot be pushed too far. Here's the thing. In order for you and me to subdue the desires of the flesh, in order for us to overcome destructive habits, in order for us to defeat the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We need more than our own strength. We need more, even more, than a bunch of friends. We need them, but we need more than them. That was the point of last week's colic. Almighty God who seest that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves. There's no doubt about it, that statement in last week's colic goes against everything we've ever learned. Almighty God who seest that we have no power of ourselves to help ourselves. Yes, we do have power to help ourselves in certain areas. No kidding. We have power to help ourselves go to work, prepare meals, perform our personal hygiene routines, and to do the necessary chores around our apartment or house. But, but we do not have power to help ourselves overcome the strong man who wants to infiltrate our thinking and capture our hearts. In his commentary on this gospel passage, M.F. Sadler, over a hundred years ago, writing, gave this explanation. The soul of the impenitent sinner 
the unrepentant sinner, that soul is Satan's stronghold or his castle. The conversion of that soul will not come just because good values or principles win out over bad ones by their own strength. Rather, that soul will only be changed by Christ's coming to it, by Christ regenerating it, renewing it, taking all of its faculties and powers and turning them from the service of self to the service of God. No change is possible in the situation of that lost soul unless Christ comes to it, regenerates it, forgives it, cleanses it, and takes all of its powers and turns them from the service of self to the service of God. We speak often of the images of darkness and light. When we're in the dark, in a dark place, or going down a dark path, it goes to say that we cannot see clearly, nor can we simply snap our fingers and produce the light, the spiritual light, the clarity that we require. We need the light of the risen Christ to come to us. We need the sun to rise and dispel the darkness, that deep darkness. This is what Sadler's talking about. My soul will only be changed and freed by Christ coming to it, saving it, breathing new life into it, and continuing from there on to illuminate it. And the thing is, he will come. He has come. And he'll come again. He will come with authority and power by his Holy Spirit. Last week it was mentioned how according to what St. Paul says, faith is like a shield, a full body shield. The Canaanite woman, for example, continued to advance with her invisible shield of faith up stopping the arrows of doubt and discouragement. St. Paul talked about other aspects of the armor of God, including the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With this powerful sword, we can, as, as the baptism service says, mortify all evil desires. Not just deflect them, but put them to death. And then we can daily increase in virtue and godly living. There is a spiritual battle, and we're in the middle of it. In fact, it's not just going on around us, it's going on within us. But we have been given the armor of God. What does that really mean, that last statement? The one I, I read just a second ago. The one that goes, with this powerful sword, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, we can mortify or put to death 
all evil desires. It kind of sounds like a, a spiritual platitude or a bit of an elevator kind of music generality thing. What it means is that on the one hand, the faith and the light and the power, the spiritual power we need to defeat temptation are real, actual gifts to us from God. In a certain way, it might be like, like this storehouse of resources that are there. Not things that we've made ourselves or discovered ourselves, but things that God has provided for us to live. There they are in this storehouse. But what that sentence that I read twice is saying is on the other hand, we must take them and arm ourselves with them. We must put them on and use them. That responsibility was simply but beautifully illustrated without a single word spoken by English painter Holman Hunt. In reflection upon Jesus' words in the book of Revelation, Hunt spent almost four years with a work of oil on canvas. These are the words he was thinking about. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. We have a stained glass of that painting on this side. As I'm sure you know, in this famous work, Christ is holding a lantern as he stands with his right hand on the door, knocking. According to the background light, it appears to be the time just before the day's dawn. The door in the painting is somewhat covered by an overgrown vine, and here's the key. It has no handle on the outside. It can only be opened from the inside. That's the point. It tells the real deal. It's up to us to open the door. We must take hold of the infinite resources of the Holy Spirit. Our will must engage. Christ must be invited in or the dark side will win. We must take the powerful sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and with it, by God's power, his victorious power in Christ, we can put to death all evil desires. In the last part of today's gospel, Jesus describes our soul as a clean house. A house that is swept and orderly, but empty. Everything seems good about that soul until the unclean spirit that used to live in it returns. Finding it empty, that evil spirit goes and gets seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That soul becomes 
as an overrun party house for these evil spirits that return. Camp Medley in Upper Gagetown was originally the Gunter Farm, and the old homestead became the staff house. Of course, as a summer-only operation and a place that was in need of all kinds of donations to survive, the staff house often became cluttered with old furniture. One year, a new director came, somebody who had no history with the camp and no sentimental feelings about things. He was married as well and had a young family and space was at a premium, as was the concern for the safety of his children. So he quickly began the work of throwing out all the junk, the table with the broken leg, the dresser with the missing drawer, the lamp that didn't work, it all went. Then he solicited donations only of things that were needed and in good shape. It was an amazing transformation in the old staff house. The picture of the empty soul in the gospel does not mean or suggest that we should fill our hearts with just anything or keep ourselves busy with just anything. We must allow only those desires and habits that will help us serve and please God. That's what we're about as followers of Christ, serving and pleasing God. Self, with its selfish desires, must die. And Christ, who is the fullness of grace and truth, must live and grow in us. On Ash Wednesday, the church invited us to read and meditate upon God's holy word. Actually, the church invited us to take up the sword of the Spirit by inviting us to read and meditate on God's holy word. In his new book, which he co-authors, Hide This in Your Heart, Michael Frost talks about protecting the radical heart. Protecting the radical heart. To follow Jesus Christ is a radical thing. It requires self-denial, after all. Sacrifice, not popular. And faith, believing in he, him who is invisible. This is all countercultural. It goes against the grain of the world. So, we need to be very intentional about protecting our hearts. About filling our souls and, says Frost, reading the Word of God and ruminating upon it is an absolute necessity. In his words, learning and reciting the Bible is not some kind of magic spell that wards off bad thoughts. But the words of Scripture can do for us what they did for Jesus in the wilderness. Words, the words of God can articulate our identity, and our purpose. They can remind us and tell us who we are and what our life is to be about. 
Memorizing scripture shapes our values and our vision as followers of Christ. And the word of God strengthens us in time of weakness and temptation. We're going to close, but there's one last piece, and it's a short one to open up. To say that God's word shapes our values or stre and strengthens us in times of temptation, to say that his word helps us to articulate who we are as the children of God is saying a lot. It's true, though, because of the nature of God's word, because of what God's word is. In the epistle to the Hebrews, there's this powerful description of God's word. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The point of comparing God's word to a two-edged sword is to say how thorough, how complete God's word can discern and distinguish. The incredible cutting power of scripture can separate even our thoughts into good and evil. It helps us to know the difference between the truly selfless spiritual deeds and those other actions which are actually selfish and ungodly. If we open our hearts, the Lord speaks to us as we read his word. That's an amazing thing. The almighty and everlasting God speaks to you and me when we open his word. So the Bible is alive. And it delivers eternal truth. And it helps us as a measuring or standard, measuring stick or standard to discern what is good and holy and right and true. The strong man has been defeated for us. And he's being defeated for us every day through the power of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Christ, the stronger man, has come. When you were baptized, he came to dwell in you. And yet, every day he knocks on the door. He wants to bring living water to refresh our souls. He wants to bring great joy, his forgiveness and healing his peace and order, his holiness and beauty. He wants to bring his new life, his eternal life. Knowing that, St. Paul says in today's epistle, walk then, walk then as children of the light, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Now unto God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, be ascribed all might, majesty, dominion, power, honor, and glory, as is most justly due, henceforth and forevermore. Amen. Amen.